I'm Rachel Krause. And I'm Carol Stern. And we are here to explore and unpack the essence, architecture, and DNA of purpose across industries, professions, relationships, and even within paradox. On this podcast, we're going to uncover the stories and the journeys of our guests, unlocking pathways to grow, to gain, and to give. So I'm really excited for today's discussion because Adam and I met actually under very funny circumstances. We both went to a dinner that we both, I think, given the choice, would have opted out of. We were both exhausted. We had been in a lot of meetings and a lot of travel that week and ended up talking till, I don't know, till they threw us out because like we closed the place down. So Adam, you're a musician. You are an academic, you're a sustainability advocate, you are an amazing young man who has accomplished so much in in a short period of life. So why don't we just start by letting you tell the audience your story? Wow. Okay. My story. Where to begin? I guess we could begin with the really pivotal moment that made me realize that I wanted to do something beyond music. And... It also informed my music career, but when I was in high school, I took a school trip for a class that I was taking in human rights. And I know it sounds weird that my public school in New York City offered a course in human rights, which is extremely unusual, but we went to go see Mary Robinson speak. And for anyone who's listening who doesn't know who Mary Robinson is, she is the former president of Ireland. She was the High Commissioner for Human Rights at the UN, and now she runs an organization called The Elders. We saw her speak, and she made the best case that I've ever heard for the relationship between human rights, humanity, protecting humanity, and climate. So seeing her inspire high school kids when she had been doing this for so long and her still being so excited about the work she was doing was so invigorating for me that when I got to college, it made me want to study the things that she was doing. And then I guess the other piece of it is that all this time I was working in music with my brothers and we had been creating songs and putting them out and starting to tour a little bit. And I saw the potential for building an audience around music. And then I wondered about the potential for using that audience for something different, for a cause around human rights, around climate. If you could build a movement for music, if you could build a fan base for music, why couldn't you do the same thing in order to solve some of the biggest problems on Earth? So those two kind of pieces came together for me around the same time in high school, early college years. And that's honestly what I've spent the last decade and a half doing. I can't believe it's been that long, but decade and a half doing. And I have never had more fun doing anything in my life. So you see this possibility. Yeah. Take us to it, though. So what'd you do? Take us through the steps. Yeah. Well, I met you. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That was the big answer. No, no, really. You thought about the music and you thought about the building and take us through it a little. Absolutely. So when we first started, we would play shows and literally two people would show up. Our very first show, we played in New Jersey at a place called I Play America. And it's kind of this arcade meets laser tag area. And there was a a venue in there for 3000 people and three people showed up. 
And what's funny is that those three people are still our fans today. But that show was horrible. We had never done a live show before. All the equipment broke down. And we had no idea what to do. We were kind of like telling jokes, playing acoustic without any sort of amplification. And it took probably 200 more shows to get to a place where we were selling tickets. And when I say selling tickets, we started with the three people, and then it went to 10, and then it went to 50, and then it went to 200, and then it went to 1,000. And now on our next tour, we're about to announce an arena tour across the United States where we're playing arenas everywhere. And that first is insane to me because of a couple reasons. First, it shows the power that the music has when people want to understand who is saying that music and they want to come see them in person. That's what can build a loyal fan base. There are tons of artists out there that are amazing but they'll have a really massive hit song as their first song or their second song, and they have a lot of trouble touring. It's once people start connecting to two songs, three songs, four songs, that they'll actually come out and see an artist in person. And all the while, while we were on tour, I stayed in school. I did my undergrad and then my master's and my PhD while we were on tour. So from the back of a tour bus, I had hundreds of books. I had so many meetings with different students and professors. And it was a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of writing. And in the same week, I defended my PhD over Zoom on Monday. And that Friday, I played Madison Square Garden for the first time. And that week was just such a pivotal moment for me because everyone had always told me, you have to pick one or the other. You have to pick one. You won't be able to do both. And that week was like, no, screw you all. I did it. These two things in one week are the pinnacle of what I wanted to do in both of those fields. And obviously, since then, I've set new goals for myself. But that's kind of how it came about. I've always loved being in school, and it's a really weird thing to say because most people I know hate school. And my professors were always saying, oh, you know, what are you going to do with this degree? Are you going to become a professor? Are you going to write? Are you and I said, I don't know. I just like being in school, and I like learning. And to be able to do that during the day and to perform at night just filled me up in a way that... I'm not sure anything else would. And now I can start to get into some of the, okay, what did I do specifically with what I learned in school and what I learned in music? But I will stop there for a moment because I've just been talking nonstop. <laughs> it's amazing actually to hear about your pairing of passions and how you describe what should seem like disparate paths. And you found the connective tissue that not only gave you the opportunity to explore and optimize all, but they optimize each other and they kind of invigorate and oxygenate each other. Yeah, it's a good point because a lot of the talks that I give when I go and give a speech, whether it's at a rally or a college, 
I talk a lot about the history of protest music, and I talk a lot about everything from the Revolutionary War to how Yankee Doodle was a song that was sung by the Brits, and it was taken on by the Americans in order to make fun of the Brits at the end of the war. And then I talk about slave music and how important it was as a tool to help slaves escape from the South. Music from the 50s and 60s, protest music, a huge revolution, huge power of that. And while I think that's incredibly important, and even in our music, we do talk about the role that advocacy has in music itself. I think there's an even more powerful thing about music and about the live space and about bringing people together that connects to that other passion of mine. I saw this moment on our last tour in Dallas. We were playing at an outdoor venue in Dallas, and our music is rather progressive. We talk about gay rights. We talk about having a female president. We talk about quinoa, the most progressive of the grains. And after the show, I get off stage and I'm looking at what was then called Twitter. And I see a tweet from Glenn Beck. And it turns out Glenn Beck was at our show. And Glenn Beck's Twitter bio says against ESG before it was cool. Obviously, he's against a lot of the things that I stand for in the climate space. But his tweet said something to the effect of, just went to see AJR's show. It was amazing. I love the lyrics. I love the performance. But the reason I started to listen to them was because it made me get closer to my son, who's a big fan. And that moment, seeing somebody who couldn't have more political differences from me, who couldn't believe something so different from what I believe in terms of climate issues, which is what I spent my life working on, and yet he's still there at our concert because he wants to make an emotional connection to someone in his family. Now, I thought a lot about that for many, many days and tried to figure out how we can use that need for emotional connection between people in order to get the people who are coming to shows to start to feel those emotional connections with each other for a different purpose. And in my case, it's for climate action. For other artists, it could be for abortion-related issues, immigration, health care, registering people to vote. But looking at how people come together in this community over music. And you see the same thing in sports. You see the same thing in theater. You see the same thing in dance, in other ways that people express themselves. That's where I started to see that connection between my two areas of focus. And I saw it in other people so I could reflect back on it in myself. It's interesting because one of the things that I really enjoyed as I got to hear more about your journey the first time we talked, and then I know it was also written in Time Magazine, was you did a year-long campaign of listening. And we're in a day and an age where I think that often people today are talking and not listening, or not hearing one another, or unwilling to hear voices they don't agree with. Talk to us a little bit about that tour. What made you do it? What'd you learn? What's the takeaway? Yeah. So, I run an organization called Planet Reimagined, and we take the idea of research and combine it with the idea of advocacy. And that might seem really simple, but traditionally, research is done in academic institutions, think tanks, and that's great, but it tends to sit on the shelf. 
advocacy is done at so many great organizations, and it's done in the streets, and it's done online, but a lot of times it doesn't capture enough of the research that's been done. So we have these programs for people from all over the world, from undergrad students through postdocs, who are doing projects that combine research and advocacy. And one of these projects is around a new approach to renewable energy. So over the last year and a half, maybe two years now, I think two years now, I would go back and forth to D.C., back and forth to state legislatures to try and understand where the gaps were between what Republicans wanted and what Democrats wanted around renewable energy. And like you said, Carol, that took a tremendous amount of listening and a tremendous amount of thinking for me to come to the conclusion that they want exactly the same thing. And I know this is going to sound insane, but they want the same thing. The renewable energy strategy that we've been proposing, the short version is, if you think about it, there's a huge amount of public land in the United States. And a good portion of that land, about 24 million acres, has been leased to oil and gas. And so they're producing oil and gas, or it used to produce oil and gas. The land has already been disturbed. Why not put renewable energy projects on that same land? The business case is it helps the oil and gas companies to transition and provides a new revenue source for them. The political case is, on the Republican side, energy security new jobs in their community, stimulates the economy. On the Democrat side, we're transitioning faster to renewable energy because we don't have to do environmental reviews because they've already been done. The infrastructure is in place and transmission's already in place. So we're preventing new emissions. And at the same time, once that land is no longer usable for oil and gas, the sun is still going to be shining and the wind is still going to be blowing. So this policy idea took over a year to come up with because I wanted to understand the energy priorities of all of these people across the spectrum. Now, it's the same exact policy, but when I walk into a conservative office, I pitch it in terms of energy security jobs in the economy. But when I walk into a Democrat office, I pitch it in terms of infrastructure and I pitch it in terms of emission reductions. When I sit down with the oil and gas company, I pitch it from the business case. When I sit down with environmental groups, I pitch it from the perspective of reducing emissions. It's all exactly the same policy. It just took that long to hear what everybody wanted to find a middle ground that they could all agree on so we can move forward faster. That's been my project for the last year and a half, and the fellows have done an amazing job having it pass at the federal level, and now they're working on it at the state and the international level to apply it in other places. On that thread and on that note, no pun intended, how has music, because such a critical part of music, whether it's on the composition side or on the performance side, has to do with listening also. How have you found that music has shaped your ability to listen, hear, and understand and develop that ability to connect with audiences? Because a stakeholder, whether it's Democrat, Republican, or an oil and gas owner, how have you found that music has helped you become a sharper and more critical listener? I have never gotten that question before, and it's an amazing question. So I've never had to think about the answer, but as soon as you asked it, everything came together and it made so much sense for me. So I play the bass on stage, and the bass 
is the kind of underlying instrument that both has percussive qualities and melodic qualities. So it is kind of this river that runs at the bottom of the songs. And you don't necessarily know it when you're listening or at a concert and say, that's the bass, that's what it's contributing. But when it's not there, you know that it's missing. So I feel like my role in the climate movement is the same kind of thing. I'm not the kind of person who's standing at the front of a protest saying, rah, rah, rah. I'm the kind of person that makes sure the protest continues to happen and that the movement continues to move along. I feel like I'm playing that baseline to get everything continuing to move. Listening when you're on stage is the only way that a concert happens. And I'm not going to be able to play my piece of it if I'm not listening to the drums and the guitar and the keyboard and the vocals and the trumpets. But at the same time, what the audience doesn't hear is that on stage we have something called a talkback, which I can flip my microphone using a foot switch to be the kind of microphone where only the other people on stage can hear it, not the audience. So I can say something like, okay, we're swapping these two songs, and then we're going to cut the bridge out of this, and then we're going to move this over here, all live on stage, and the audience will have no idea. So to be able to make those changes in the moment and be nimble takes listening while you're playing the song, and at the same time listening to something completely different so you can know what the next steps are. I really think I learned how to listen, now that you say it, from music in order to do it in the climate space. Yeah, you become like a three-dimensional surround sound listener. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sonos. <laughs> I know you also talk a lot about community, and you mm. talk about those aha moments that have kind of yeah. defined a little bit of what you and Rachel were just talking about, actually, in terms of listening and then coming together. Want to talk a minute about that as well? Sure. I feel like I have two different senses of the term community. The first is my family. We've spent so much time on the road together, me and my brothers, that we are so incredibly close and yet at the same time have so much respect for our differences because we're three very different people. Ryan and Jack, my two brothers, they write most of the music and Ryan produces it and Jack's the lead singer. And I do a lot of the business side of things, the marketing side, planning our tours, things like that. And we really have the kind of respect for each other where we don't question each other's choices. So it's that level of trust that has built that community that has allowed us to live on a tour bus now. But before that, we were in a minivan driving 10,000 miles, just the three of us, to play in front of 10 people in each show. In another sense, we've built this fan base that's a community unlike anything I've seen. And no, we are not even close to the level of Taylor Swift or BTS, where they have these huge fan bases. But to give you an idea, a handful of years ago, we were in Salt Lake City, and we were playing a show. And Salt Lake City is one of my favorite places because they really go incredibly hard at concerts. Incredibly hard. We were in the middle of a song, and we realized that the audience wasn't jumping, wasn't screaming along 
the way they normally did. And we looked down into the audience and realized that a young woman was having a seizure in the middle of the show. And nothing like that had ever happened to us before. But we paused the music and we spoke to the fans and said, okay, something's happening over there. We need to make sure we can get the paramedics to her. And immediately, like one organism, they all just split in order to make a path for the paramedics to get to her. The young woman ended up being okay, and she came back for the rest of the show. But the fact that all of them were there as individuals, but then they came together in order to help one of their own was so inspiring for me that immediately then I thought of them as a community because they were there for each other just as much as they were there for us. It's like a play off of harmony, not just the technical musical term, but yeah. the collection of differences and different voices all working and synchronized the motion forward. Yep. And there's a lot of musical metaphors mm -hmm. that I think work both in community building and in movement building. I think thinking about music as a metaphor is something that I should be doing more of. So thank you for that. You also borrow from business. You know, you said you handle the business side for the band and yeah, you've applied some of the music business industry to the cause. Yes, in a couple of different ways. The first innovative strategy that I ended up coming up with in the music industry was how to roll out a tour as an opening act. Now, this was something that had never been done before, but I said, why not? And our agent was furious at me because it meant so much more work for him. But I said, I really have a feeling that this strategy is going to do something interesting for us. So we were opening for an artist named Ingrid Michelson, and we're huge fans of Ingrid Michelson. And we were playing in two to 3,000 capacity theaters around the country. Now, when you're opening for another artist, traditionally you can't announce your own tour because they don't want to pull audience from their tour. They want your audience to come see them and their audience to come see them. So the strategy was I put a show on sale every single night in the market that we were playing 15 minutes after we started our set. So that way, I could announce from the stage with a real sense of urgency, we just put a show on sale 15 minutes ago, grab your tickets now. Without fail, every single one of those shows sold out. Now, so many artists are replicating that. It makes use of the audience you have in the room. If they like the show that you're performing, you're in the middle of the show, so it's top of mind. It's not like you're sending them an email after or a text after or trying to reach them on social media. They are in the moment. And so many of them bought tickets, and that's how the real building of our fan base started. So taking that idea of having people in that euphoria moment of being at a show and trying to get them to do something else, buy a ticket, spend money. It's that same kind of idea that I'm applying to the climate space. So we did a campaign with the UN, I guess it was about three or four years ago now, where we had different artists pick different of the sustainable development goals that they were really passionate about. And these artists, some of them were comedians, some of them were musicians, some of them were dancers. And we gave them the opportunity to create content that they knew would resonate with their fans. 
I know we have somebody here who has spent some time at the UN. I don't know who that is, but, you know, <laughs> the traditional UN way of doing it is giving people a script that they're supposed to read about the SDGs or about a UN cause. But the difference here is we let them be completely creative and express the SDG that they cared about. So this young man created a choreographed dance piece about no poverty. We had Rain Wilson from the TV show The Office. He did a whole comedic routine about education. And what we did was we had all these videos go up at the same time. And we incentivized people to watch the videos all the way through in exchange for a dollar being donated to an organization that was relevant to the video. Now, this helped everybody. One of the hardest things for people to get online is high retention rates. The whole algorithm of TikTok is based on people watching as much of the video as possible. So we created an incentive for that. So the audience, if you watch the video all the way through, that means a dollar would be donated in your name. And we did a lot of testing to determine, should it be a quarter, should it be 50 cents? A dollar was the thing that got people to watch a video all the way through. These videos were five, six, seven minutes long. People were watching creative content in this moment. They were learning about the SDGs, and they felt they were donating their time because a dollar was being donated to a specific cause. We raised about $120,000 in 24 hours of these videos coming out. So that's a lot of people watching these videos all the way through. It takes that moment of people being in the middle of something that they're really enjoying, this content, their favorite dancer, artist, musician, etc., and turning it into something for good, something really positive, knowing that money is going to a cause that you really believe in. So that's just one example of the campaigns that we've done that takes that idea of getting people really excited about something and moving it into that cause-based space. And as an industry, whether it's performance or music or the world of sports, entertainment, how can this become a framework, an identity marker as part of the industry so that it's not just individualized, but it's somehow becomes yeah. an important marker across all functions and becomes part of the ecosystem. The question that you're asking has been answered by people who think they know the answer to the question. <laughs> and no hate against people who have tried this a lot. Absolutely none. But there has never been a study done to determine that, to determine the actual effect that celebrities, musicians, etc., have on creating change. And so about six months ago, we started that study to understand how at concerts, sports events, online, to know exactly what artists and other celebrities should be doing, can be doing based on who their audience is based on the kinds of causes their audience wants to participate in, whether it's before they go to the concert, whether it's in the car on the way there, whether it's waiting in line for merchandise online for the bathroom, through a QR code on the screen, whether it should be shouted from the stage. So we've partnered with Ticketmaster, and we're in the process of polling about a million people who have gone to concerts in the last six months to understand exactly how to do the most effective advocacy. It's a very long and in-depth study where we're getting millions of data points 
Then over the next six months, we're going to concerts where we're going to reach a bunch of different demographics to test out these theories. And then we're applying them to sports, places like Comic-Con, theater, etc. So while I don't have the actual scientific answer to your question, I have been so curious about this question that we literally went out to get funding in order to bring on new fellows at Planet Reimagined, postdoc fellows, to do this massive study and find out the answer. And we're going to make all of the results free and open source for the industry. And there'll be a very specific toolkit for artists, for venues, and for sports teams. Adam, you have done so much. Unpacking all of this is amazing. If you're lucky enough to have grandchildren someday, what do you hope they remember you for? Well, the number one thing is I hope they remember me for being fun. Regardless of all of these other things, I hope that I can be a fun person to them and that they remember me for happy memories. At the same time, I really hope that they're living in a world where climate change is not in their vernacular. And I hope that they know how much that I and other people in their history fought to make the world a livable place for them. Just like I know my grandfather who got a Purple Heart fighting in World War II, I know the sacrifice that he made for me and his family that are living now. And it's something that I think about a lot and fully recognize. And I hope that understanding generational appreciation is something that they will continue to live with. But I hope they live in a world that's not plagued with the kind of extreme weather events and disasters that are climate change related. Adam, one of the things we like to do at the end of our cast every time is to really ask you for a little bit of a swag bag gift for our audience. Something that they can take away, something they can learn from you, something you particularly just would want to share with them. So what do you got for the swag bag? Okay. I think I have three different things I want to put in the swag bag. The first is a book. It's this book called The Ministry for the Future. And it's a book about climate, and it's kind of depressing, but at the same time, it's kind of optimistic, and you learn so much about human potential. And I really like that idea of human potential. So that's one thing, that's one physical thing that I'm putting in the swag bag. The second thing that I'm putting in the swag bag is a way to connect with family. And I think family for me is so important. I spend so much time on the road with my family, but I also think of a lot of other people in my life as my family. And one of the things that I love asking people in my family is what they ate in their last meal. I'm a big foodie. I travel the world. I try and eat in as many restaurants as possible. And I like trying local cuisines. And one way to just start a conversation to connect you to your family is to ask a question about the last thing that they ate. So that's number two. Number three, the last piece of the swag bag is to do something for yourself. 
as you're listening to this, think about what that would be. And it's one of the most underestimated things is doing things for yourself to just take a moment, think about what that might be, whether it is eating your favorite meal or going to get a massage or sitting in silence for 10 minutes. God, I just appreciate silence so much. Those are my three things for the swag bag. I hope they're sufficient and I hope you enjoy them. Thank you so much. Both Rachel and I are thrilled to have just had a chance to hear a little bit more about your purpose and how you're applying it through things you love to do. Oh, next time I want to talk about both of you. <laughs> you're on. When you're back in New York, you are on because I can't Let's wait for you it. to meet Rachel in person. <laughs> yes, please. Thanks so much for joining us. Listen on Purpose is a series as part of Kindred Cast from Kindred Media and Audiation with the phenomenal music by Rachel's 10-year-old son, Noam Krauss. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe to Kindred Cast wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review letting us know what you think. We are your hosts, Rachel Krauss and Carol Stern. Thank you for listening. And find your purpose. <laughs>